Hi, everyone. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. We are uh, one week away from the MedTech Conference, and if you're joining us here on this podcast, you should be joining us at the MedTech Conference. It's in Minneapolis at the Lowe's Hotel. Still time to register, and if you use the MedTech Talk code, you'll save yourself a little bit of money. So go to medtechconference.com. Check out the jam-packed agenda. It's, uh, it's really uh, been a great uh, working with our co-chairs, Kevin Hikes and Justin Klein, to put together this program. I think you'll uh, really find uh, the whole day uh, to be fascinating. But uh, if not, there'll certainly be something for everyone on the main stage, uh, including uh, a robotics panel that I'm going to have a, the pleasure of uh, moderating. I just did the, the pre-panel call today just to kind of go over some, some talking points and uh, it was a fascinating uh, discussion, even uh, even just in a warm up conversation. So I can't wait to to get on the stage and talk to those uh, those leaders in the robotics space. I want to focus on the the breakout sessions that'll be happening in the morning and the afternoon at the MedTech conference. We've got five great sessions. Uh, we've got partners like Fox Rothschild, PwC, Silicon Valley Bank, McDermott, Will and Emery. They're all presenting uh, great topics that uh, will help uh, help MedTech executives and entrepreneurs find uh, successful paths going forward. This podcast, though, I want to focus on one in particular. It's being put on by Mark Duvall of Duvall and Associates. Uh, Mark is focusing on the uh, off-label promotion uh, prosecution that's being uh, pursued quite vigorously by the Department of Justice. And specifically, he's focusing on the case, or at least building his presentation, around the case that the government had, had brought against Vascular Solutions and Howard Root. We're very happy to have Howard Root joining us next week uh, at the MedTech Conference. He'll be joining Mark in the presentation. He'll share Vascular Solutions experiences, his own experiences, and he'll offer the advice, uh, the lessons he's learned uh, from the last five years uh, that have cost the company $25 million to defend against the case that essentially collapsed against on it, upon its own weight. Uh, Vascular Solutions defense team didn't even have to present its case for the jury to find in the company's favor. So. This really is an important thing, and, and, and it's something all medtech folks sh- should be aware of and to make sure they're protected against. And uh, this co- this conversation in today's podcast will sort of set the stage for uh, next week's conversation uh, between uh, Howard Root and Mark Duvall at the MedTech conference. Let's have a listen. All right, Howard Root and Mark Duvall, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Very happy to have you both at our MedTech conference next week. And uh, you'll, of course, be uh, be leading a breakout session. Uh, Mark, maybe you can uh, just give the title and sort of uh, uh, what you'd be hope to to deliver in that breakout session. And then, uh, Howard, we can get into the backstory as to, to what is going on with the DOJ and, and with the government and really how they're going after uh, a number of, of MedTech companies. But we can focus on your experience with uh, with Vascular Solutions, which fortunately had a happy ending uh, a few months ago when uh, when a jury found very quickly uh, in your favor. But Mark, what's the give us a quick overview of the session next week? Well, the session is really about uh, taking stock of the Howard Root Vascular Solutions acquittal, which of course started with the prosecution uh, and indictment and a prosecution. And we want to just take stock of what that case was all about and what does it mean for executives today who are faced uh, with being in the in the same position as Howard was with his board of directors and his investors. And uh, 
understanding the courage it took to make some of the decisions that they made and how that all turned out well and good. But we want to sort of uh, look at the landscape today and where the government's approaching this from a from a legal perspective and what does it practically mean for a management team as they face these issues day in day out as they promote products uh, as any company commercializing medical devices promotes their products that's a, obviously an important issue and let's just get into into the history uh, i mean this has been a a five-year battle for you right howard Right, yeah, it started back in 2011, and it just ended with a not guilty verdict at the end of February. So almost five years start to finish, uh, and uh, 25 million dollars, and uh, and 121 lawyers later, we uh, we had a successful end. But you know, the damage of the money and all the ex- all the lost opportunities is is always gone. How did how did this start? Like literally, what was the first uh, sign that you got that that uh, they would be coming at you like they did? Well, virtually all these incidents start the exact same way. Some former employee decides that he wants to make some money. And the way the whistleblower system works, the Quitam lawsuits, he goes to a lawyer, talks to him about things, creates claims. In this case, he created a bunch of false allegations of what had gone on at Vascular Solutions about just one of our 100 medical devices that we sell, a product that made up 0.1% of our sales. But he created this idea that this was being promoted off-label, that he had some crazy theories of what the regulatory situation was around the product, created a complaint, filed it. He files it with the U.S. attorneys. They get time to decide whether to intervene. They do intervene, and then they start their investigation, and their investigation starts by talking to that disgruntled employee, a former employee, who gets 20% of whatever they recover, at least 20% of whatever they recover. So he makes a claim for $20 million. If the government shakes out money from vascular solutions, he gets 20% of that or $4 million. So there's a strong incentive for him to actually create really false stories about what went on and begin. Then from there, the government, after deciding whether this is something to investigate, starts sending a subpoena to us for all our records. Uh, at the same time as this Quitam lawsuit goes on, there's a criminal investigation on the same facts, the same office down in San Antonio starts. And then from there, they decide to call witnesses down to grand juries. They invest their money and their time. Uh, we settle the Quitam lawsuit for an insignificant amount of money, no admission. Uh, but the criminal investigation continues to go on. And then it's just a cascade of issues when the government gets their hands on something and invests their what they call blood, sweat, and tears. Because in the end, the only way that they'll, they'll settle it is if someone pleads guilty, people get fired, people get excluded from health care. Because we weren't willing to do that, the government finally had to go to trial, and the jury decided that there was nothing there and uh, came off with a not guilty verdict on all charges. And you, so that's kind of a quick thumbnail of what went on. And what was the, what was the, 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 the nut of the charge uh, involved uh, uh, one of your devices and whether or not it was being used to marketed for the use of perforator veins? Is that right? Right, yeah. So it's the Verilase product, which is an endovenous laser product. It's treatment for varicose veins. We had the general uh, indication for use in varicose veins, all varicose veins. We had eight separate 510Ks. The reason why we had seven more is you're trying to get specific indications for the lesser saphness, for the tributary, for the perforator veins. Uh, we had all those except for the one around the perforator veins, and we still had the general indication, but didn't have the specific indication. And this employee claimed, and the U.S. attorneys went down this theory, is that because we didn't have the specific indication and because some sales reps, a few of them talked about perforator veins, they thought that was a crime. 
And at trial, what we finally proved, but the government never believed and never heard and never even asked us to explain, is that because we had the general indication that was sufficient legally to be talking about perforator veins, it was covered. So in essence, this was an off-label prosecution for an on-label use of a medical device. And it was only at a trial we could prove that and be judged not guilty. And what what transpired over those five years? Uh, what were you required to do? Did you, did, uh, did you submit to, to many interviews with the government? Uh, were there a lot of testimony? Were they at your offices going through, I don't know, your servers and emails and such? Well, this was my first criminal investigation. so that's, Good for you. Congratulations. <laughs> that's a good thing. You know? <laughs> uh, hopefully my last criminal investigation as well. I was a lawyer by training, but I was a corporate lawyer, and I always wanted to do a criminal trial, but I wanted to be the lawyer, not the defendant in the criminal <laughs> trial. But be careful what you wish for sometimes. <laughs> but uh, the criminal process is a little bit different because it's not a back and forth between two equal parties. The government's got all the power. First, they have the grand jury subpoena. So they go and say, we want these 20 witnesses, 20 employees to come down here and answer questions. And when they pull them into the grand jury session, there's no lawyer from our side allowed in there. There's no judge in there. It's the prosecutor, it's the witness, and it's the grand jurors. And they just beat these people up. I mean, they just outright, I would say, lie about what the law and the facts are and ask them to agree. And then they claim, aha, we have all this evidence about what went on. And in this case, it was even worse. These prosecutors read secret grand jury testimony to other witnesses and asked them to, dis- to agree, threatened them with perjury charges if they didn't change their testimony. Really, they did anything they could to try to create the case that we were doing something wrong. I offered to go down and talk to the prosecutors. That meeting was set up. Two days before the meeting, they canceled it. They never talked to me. So they indicted me without ever talking to me about what the facts were. Instead, they just used the grand jury process to kind of beat us up. They also did subpoenas. They got two million pages of our documents. They went through all of those trying to find what words the sales rep said in a trip report about a talk with the doctor. They're just mining through an entire seven years' worth of records to try to find something that bolsters their case. That's remarkable that they never actually talked to you. Right. They don't, you know, what what good was that going to be? I was going to say that nothing happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, they never even interviewed the FDA expert, the branch chief that they called as their expert at trial. They never interviewed him beforehand to ask him, did we have the approval? When we put him on the stand and we had the cross-examination, we asked the question, so you could see that this approval covers perforator veins? And he answered, it could. Now, if the approval covered the use in perforator veins, it's not off-label. If it's not off-label, you cannot charged me with a crime. But because these prosecutors said their mission was to prosecute us, not to get to the bottom of the matter, not to get to justice, but to get a conviction, they didn't even care to ask their expert witness that question. Now, it all blew up in trial. And as a result of that, we didn't call a single witness to testify in our defense. The government called 20 witnesses. At the end of that, after cross-examining them, we just rested, went right to closing arguments, a day of deliberations, the jury comes back unanimously not guilty. So how does that work when the government brings criminal charges, presents all their witnesses, and still can't win a case? I mean, we really there's a problem with the Department of Justice on how these people are motivated and act and what their attitude is towards medical device companies. And that's something I think everyone should be aware of if you're running a medical device company today. So it, it sounds like it's akin to charging someone with theft without anything really ever being stolen. 
Well, there's an old saying that, you know, in Soviet Russia, I don't want to get too far into it, but they say, you know, you show me the person, I'll show you the crime. Mm -hmm. And it's almost gotten to that way with the Department of Justice and medical device companies. I would say that in the eyes of federal prosecutors, every operating medical device company and every CEO commits at least one felony every year that could cause them to go to prison. That's in the eyes of the federal prosecutors. And once they get that idea and they have the incentive to continue the prosecution, they're going to bring more and more of these charges. It's a profitable operation for them. They make $7 for every dollar they invest. So the incentive is there. The ambiguous regulations are there. The process is there for them to abuse. Everything's there for prosecutors to continue to make us the number two target in America right after banks. Banks are number one. Healthcare uh, and individuals are number two in the eyes of the Department of Justice for criminal prosecutions today. Mark, can you just give us a sort of a, a, a broader sense? I mean, you're, you're, you're knee-deep in all of this. Uh, are you hearing many other accounts similar to, to Howard's? Yeah, well, first of all, let me tell you, when, the, when Howard's indictment came down, as well as Bill Facto and a Clarence, um, you know, our firm started getting calls from uh, board members and CEOs all over the country, uh, and we started spending a ton of time doing a couple of things. One is sort of helping them understand what the heck is going on, understanding the landscape, the, lay, the, the law as it applies to this area. And secondly, are, you know, are we violating the law? So a lot of them were asking for compliance assessments, and we dig in, kind of look at what they're doing promotionally speaking. But seminally, it all flows from, in a macro sense, you got these two dysfunctional, you know, uh, divisions of government. You have the, F, the Food and Drug Administration creating, if you will, this label by virtue of the clearance or the approval they give for a device. And you've got the Department of Justice acting upon that if they feel that something is deemed off-label, like they did in Howard's case, and running with it from a criminal perspective. Because it's all about, you know, they, they, they tout and they brag, the, the Department of Justice, uh, that they for every $8 for every one dollar that they spend, they bring in eight dollars to the to the federal coffers. And you know, where where does government get to have prosecutorial effort become a revenue raising vehicle? Isn't it really about a search for the truth? And so, when we work with management teams, you know, we're, we, this decision really requires management, in essence, to rethink how it wants to approach commercial discussions regarding off-label use and claims about approved or cleared drugs and, and medical devices. And so we, we will work through, uh, through them uh, with the FDA and the government have lost a lot of cases as of late in the First Amendment arena. And we're talking about the, uh, the Coronia case, the Amron case, and the Pacera case, which I'm not going to drill down on. And what a lot of people are more familiar with now today, the Howard Root Vascular Solutions case, and there's others coming. There's, you know, the Clarent Bill Facto case, as I was talking about. Uh, Pat Fabian's involved in that as well. In addition, you know, you have the Warner Chilcott case that's coming up. So there's a lot of stuff, and the government is being challenged. And when they get challenged, it's one thing for them to settle civilly and extract funds because companies often just don't want to take the stock hit. They don't want the specter of what Howard had to face, and that is, you know, a criminal pursuit of a criminal case, um, and there's just a variety of reasons to extract yourself from the governmental allegations early on. There's no incentive to carry on because you you know you're exposed. Uh, but, comp- but when companies do uh, challenge the government, they have unif- the government's uniformly lost. Uh, and Howard's an, an example of that, but at $25 million of expense. So the case itself was very interesting to me and intriguing in a, a number of fronts. One was, um, 
you know, first of all, I teach all the time about general versus specific use. It's an FDA guidance document, and companies are all the time trying to understand, okay, we've gotten this umbrella claim from the government, but I have a specific use to which my device can be put. Is that under the umbrella and deemed on-label? Uh, it's protected from the elements and being considered off-label, or is, is it so far afield it's all tied to the protective reach of the umbrella, exposed to the elements, and therefore deemed off-label? And it's therefore subject to criminal and civil prosecution. So we're helping management teams all the time trying to understand that. And there's invariably risk because sometimes you clearly know that a use is on label. Then there's uses that you think you think are clearly on label, but you think the FDA may disagree with you. And there's a third category where you believe the FDA thinks you're at that use is off label, but you believe it's on label. So what are you going to do in the face of that kind of opposition? So we put companies through that exercise to figure out, you know, what is it they can do and, and you know, categorize each of these things and then decide how they want to promote uh, their product. But in, in Howard's case specifically, I found it remarkable that they, the prosecution rested their case after presenting their full case against the defense, uh, Howard and, and the company, and then Howard and the company rested their case. Much, I mean, I had to shock you the read judge. My mind. I had to shock. That's what I wanted to get yeah, into. It was, absolutely, it, it's crazy, and I, that took a lot of guts to do that. You had to feel pretty secure that in your cross-examination efforts, you did such a, a extensive and good job that you actually presented your defense through the prosecution's witnesses and evidence, other evidence. And yeah. they did that, and that's yeah. remarkable. That's uh, I mean, that's exactly. But when you get into trial, there's two parts for a jury's decision. It's the it's the law, and it's the emotion. It's the facts and the emotion. Some people are thinkers. Some people are feelers. Right. The thinking side, we had done enough on the cross-examination to give every thinker the understanding that this government was just wrong, just flat-out wrong. Their own experts said, this thing is covered. That's enough. We're not going to get any better than that. On the feeling side, we got into evidence all of the abuse that the government did to my employees, the threats. They said to one guy, you have to sign on the dotted line and come to San Antonio and testify against vascular solutions and me or else you could face 30 years in prison. So if you don't sign what we put in front of you, you're gonna, now if you do sign that, you're free and clear. Nothing's gonna happen to you. I mean, that kind of stuff, when juries hear it, they think, what is this going on here? This is not the government. This is a shakedown operation. And we already had that as well. So when you had the feelings and the thinking, and it wasn't gonna get any better, we said, that's it. But it is amazing that the government's case itself proved our innocence, that the government couldn't win with just us tying our hands behind our back and calling our own witnesses. And, and there, yet, is, there is, go ahead, Howard. And, and yet, and yet, what happens to the prosecutors? I mean, it's not like they suffer any damages. They don't have to pay any money for this. They don't get censored. I mean, in case after case where the Department of Justice has made mistakes, outright misconduct, they still don't punish their own. They still don't go after their own prosecutors. And that, that's a bigger problem in the entire uh, Department of Justice, but it also applies really to us in medical device land. Hi, everyone. Tom here. Uh, sorry for the interruption, but uh, did want to remind you that we'll be, uh, we'll be following this story even further at the MedTech Conference. So go to medtechconference.com, use the MedTech Talk code to, uh, to register, and you'll be able to uh, meet with Mark and Howard uh, either in the breakout session or uh, in the hallways at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. That's remarkable. And it's chilling, too, to, 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 to hear that and to, to be an employee who is given basically a way out. And all you have to do is do this thing that you, even if you don't think it's the right thing to do, it'll... It, the the alternative might be thirty years in prison. That's uh, 
that's a that's a difficult place to to be in. How how do you? I mean, it for them, it must be really uh, remarkable for you as a, as an employer to to have employees who didn't take that offer and di- and didn't do what was being well, yeah. crammed down their throat. But some employees didn't take the offer. Other employees did take the offer. I mean, the guy I mentioned there, he did sign what they wanted him to say, and then he came and he testified, and it sounded bad on direct. And then he gets a cross-examination, and our lawyer starts asking him the questions about why did he sign the statement, Mm -hmm. and what did he believe. Now, you don't want to get him to admit he committed perjury on the stand. But on the other hand, he pretty quickly backtracks from the words that the government wrote for him to sign, as opposed to the words that really happened in his own mind. And the jurors, I mean, I always, people fear juries. In my case, I feared the judge. I feared the prosecutors. I didn't fear the jurors. The jurors could see through things. They felt things. They understood what was going on. And, you know, in this case, a product that was so insignificant, 0.1% of our sales, never harmed a patient, and we're getting prosecuted based on what a, a, a sales rep said, no one could figure out why this was even a criminal case. And that's, that's the great equalizer. They have to believe beyond a reasonable doubt you committed a crime. But I'll tell you, it's, it, there's no false optimism here. To get to that point, to spend that amount of time and that amount of money and suffer those kind of attacks and have your name plastered on the front page of the local paper as being a criminal, I mean, you've got to have a strong stomach to go through that, and then you get exonerated, but only then exonerated, and the allegations probably still live on forever. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, so where do you go from – I mean, you're right. You, you get the, the – the, 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 you don't even present your case. You're, 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 you're vindicated. Uh, you probably obviously were, were elated, but you just spent five years and $25 million Fighting this thing that obviously had, was was baseless to begin with. Where where do you where you go from there, and how are you managing vascular solutions going forward? And maybe within that answer, you could also say, how did you manage it during these five years? It must have been a, a major distraction. Yeah. So what do you do going forward? Well, the first thing we looked at is can we sue the prosecutors of the government for malicious prosecution? Because that's clearly what this was. We find out that there's a provision for that, statutory provision. But the problem is if you're a rich company, you can't take advantage of that provision. And if you have a net worth over $7 million, um, you can't take advantage of that provision. You can't sue the government for malicious prosecution. So you have to have enough money to survive to pay $25 million for your legal defense. But if you have over $7 million when you started it, well, you know, the only people who could sue the government is the ones who couldn't survive a malicious prosecution. So that was completely eliminated. We couldn't do that. And we're trying to push the Department of Justice on doing something against these prosecutors and their supervisors who should have been reviewing this and stopping this before it got there. But it's all based on a Washington, D.C. kind of putting pressure on the Department of Justice. What we do internally, well, even though I say that every company is committing a felony every year, that's not an excuse to say ignore your compliance. If you're going to be accused of something, it doesn't matter, just don't do anything. No, you've got to make sure that you've got the policies in place, you've got the compliance officer in place, you do the audits, you do the follow-up, you address things as they go along. You want to minimize that risk as much as possible. We had already done that. I mean, I've been doing this since I was a lawyer, I was a compliance officer at my old company back in the 90s. And uh, I, we put this complete system in place, but you can always do more. And one of my lessons is the first day that a medical device company sells a product in the U.S., you need to have a full-time compliance officer. I don't know any other way you can limit the risk 
unless you have a full-time compliance officer just devoted to it. There's just too much to do. We have a compliance program that goes 100 pages long of just the tasks that we're doing every single month in terms of education, in terms of auditing, in terms of record keeping, in terms of uh, record retention. And, and the record retention policy is as important as anything else in these situations because emails and documents can be the, 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 the benefit or oftentimes the, the magic bullet that kills you in these kinds of uh, situations. So all that has to be done, and you can amp it up and amp it up and amp it up. And what does that do? It just takes money away from developing new medical devices and puts it into really the compliance area, which is important, but not to the extent that they're forcing us to go into on insignificant matters like what we went through with the short kit investigation and prosecution. And what was the company like over these five years? Oh, well, there is ebbs and flows, and yeah, actually, you know, um, when it got to the trial, it was one of the more calm times because I could see what was happening as it was happening, and I had confidence in what the result was going to be. But the real tricky time, the real uncertain time is before you get indicted. Uh, when you see something and it's not been exposed, it's not been disclosed, you're sitting there trying to figure out, well, what's going to be the stock market reaction when the company gets indicted? We're a public company. Are the shareholders going to sell all the stock? Are they going to believe me? Are they going to say the government's never wrong? And the fortunate thing that I found as we got indicted and the stock went down some, but it bounced back up, and we never had a single shareholder lawsuit. The only reason that was because there wasn't any lost money in the stock market. I mean, for a day or two, but it came back, and the plaintiff's firms didn't see anything through their trolling to try to find plaintiffs or to try to create claims that they could go after us on. So that was amazing. But the banks and the financial institutions and the mutual funds, they understand that the government's not always right. And so they are really on your side. And once the shareholders are on your side for a public company, the employees see the stock price being up and they're on your side as well until they get pulled down to a grand jury. And I saw employees who are very strong employees leave the office to go down to San Antonio for the grand jury confident and come back just beaten down and really beaten to the point that they didn't want to continue to go on. But we kept them together. We didn't lose a single officer during this process. Our business grew. Our sales grew by 17% uh, last year while we were fighting this criminal indictment. And it was our 13th consecutive year, 12th consecutive year of double-digit percentage sales growth. And we still were profitable, even in spite of that. Uh, but if it happened to us 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been big enough to survive. Uh, if it happens you know, 20 years from now, we're probably too big to survive, and, and the board of directors would have done something different. But we didn't make a single change to our system in terms of operations and governance through the whole process. We just hunkered down. We went full turtle, as I said, pulled everything into the shell and withstood the, the blows from the government, won, and now we're back out you know, spending all the money on R&D as opposed to lawyers. And and you are not uh, shrinking back. I think a lot of people would be tempted just to to duck and uh, and keep down after after this sort of entanglement. You were I, I remember reading the release that you issued the day uh, the day after uh, the day after the acquittal, and uh, I remember how strong the language was. Uh, how did this affect you personally, both just as a professional, but also at home? You 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 clearly are are. Uh, very passionate about this. Yeah, I, you know, I, you look at it and, um, you know, if you go through something like this and the government's done something wrong and you see them doing it over and over again, not to me over and over again, but to more people and more people. And then I see people who want to just, like, say nothing and wander away, and that's just not, not acceptable. That's just not the way that things 
improve. If we, if we don't say something publicly, it's going to get worse. And it's already really, really bad. So I was confident that we were going to win. I put a lot of time into that press release, wrote it myself, edited myself, did the legal review myself, which I don't recommend. But in this case, you know, I was going to make sure that I said the things I wanted to say my way. And we're not out there slandering people, but we're certainly laying the facts out there because there's got to be pushback. I mean, there's no other answer to this. If there's not a public pushback against what the government's doing to us, it's going to continue. So, you know, that's... That's where I am, and I'm kind of built for that. I mean, I was a lawyer by training. You know, I started the company 20 years ago, and, um, you know, you don't go through that without having a pretty thick skin uh, of the things I've gone through. This is only the third worst thing that I've encountered at Vascular Solutions. I mean, our first product failed, commercially failed. Our stock price went from $12 IPO to $26, down to 70 cents, and we had very little chance of survival and because of the hard work of our employees, we pulled it through. So that that was even harder than going through this criminal trial. But once you do all this, you don't want to just sit there and wait for the next one. You want to go out there and talk about it. And hopefully something changes at the Department of Justice and at the FDA that they don't continue to try to do this nonsense to companies that are creating jobs and developing life-saving medical devices. And you probably go to work every day worrying, or, or perhaps you don't, but uh, I would guess anyone listening to this would has to wonder what their sales reps are, are saying, even perhaps, you know, being misheard or being misconstrued or, or, or uttering accidentally something that could be used against them uh, in a future investigation. Yeah. Everyone who's got an operational a, a medical device company that's selling a medical device in the U.S., and it's not just the U.S., and it's not just off-label. You've got the False Claims Act. You've got the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, you've got all the general regulations that apply to businesses, not just medical device businesses. So every one of those laws, every one of those regulations creates criminal liability for the CEO as the responsible corporate officer. If you're not afraid of that, you're not paying attention. And everyone who's running a company or has their hands into a medical device company has to pay attention to what's going on with the Department of Justice and these criminal prosecutions. When it was just money, anyone could just say, well, we'll just do a cost-benefit analysis. But if I'd lost, I would have gone to prison for a minimum of three years. No parole, 85% had to be time served in a federal penitentiary. I would have been excluded from health care for over five years. Essentially, my career would have been over. Um, for a product that made up 0.1% of our sales, had eight separate FDA clearances and never harmed a single patient. Because supposedly a sales rep said the wrong word. Uh, I mean... You wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen, you know, if it wasn't something that actually occurred, because you wouldn't think that the system is so out of control that this would occur. That's quite a story, and, and uh, we'd be interested in following up with you uh, further down the line. Will you be telling the story uh, in one form or another? You mentioned uh, off, off the call that you're working on a book. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, one of the young attorneys working on the case uh, decided to leave the legal profession to become a, a writer, and uh, real fortuitous timing because he quit right after the trial was over. So I said, here's the first project, let's write it together, and uh, we're about two-thirds of the way through it, and by the end of the year it's going to be called Cardiac Arrest, which I thought's a good title, and uh, um, about the whole story of the, the criminal prosecution of vascular solutions and our successful outcome. So... That, uh, that'll be the whole story. We'll try to keep it under 300 pages, although you could write a lot, lot more about it. But keep it interesting and keep it small and short. Oh, well, um, 
but yeah, there, between that and just doing talks about it, I think it's important to get this story out because I don't think there's enough people who realize it, certainly in the medical device community and even, you know, in the, the legal community as well. And when I talk about it, I get one or two reactions. Either they're appalled at it or they're apathetic. And uh, people who are apathetic just aren't paying enough attention to what's going on, especially if you're working in this industry. So it's good to get people aware of what's going on. Well, we're grateful to have you uh, at the conference next week. And, Mark, uh, thank you for, uh, for putting this, uh, this breakout session together. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating study of this. Uh, it is an appalling, appalling situation. So I'll go with appalling, not apathetic. Uh, anything, to, <laughs> anything to end, uh, end this with, Mark? Uh, what folks are going to look forward to next week? Yeah, just to say, I think it's going to, you can tell it's going to be an interesting session. They're going to get the opportunity to sort of hear uh, some general observations about the case uh, and what it means for the management of any company. And they're going to, you know, get an opportunity to hear uh, Howard talk a little bit more. He's got some five uh, bullet points that he's going to go through that are going to be very interesting takeaways from this case. And then we're going to open it up for dialogue. And we just really want people to ask the questions that they have in their minds at this point. And I think, you know, with only 35 minutes, it's not enough time to, to do justice to this topic, but we're going to at least uh, try and broach some of the topics at a high level and let, let some of the executives and VCs in attendance just uh, bandy about the questions that they have in their minds that they're confronting as they sit on boards, as they sit on their management teams. It'll be fun. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling that some people will be pulling you aside uh, before and after those two breakout sessions. So. Uh, thank you both for your time today, for sharing the story. Congratulations, Howard, on uh, on your victory earlier this year, and uh, just sorry it came at such a cost. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Thank you, Tom, for your time. Well, thank you, Howard Root, for uh, joining us on the podcast and for uh, coming to the MedTech Conference next week. Mark Duvall, thank you for bringing uh, this important conversation to the MedTech conference. It's really, uh, it's uh, rather chilling to hear uh, the account of uh, how a company that is, has done no harm can be uh, really uh, gone after by uh, federal prosecutors. So it's, uh, I'm glad that ordeal is over for Vascular Solutions. Um, I'm amazed that Howard is uh, taking as strong a stance as he can. I think it takes a lot of courage to do what he's doing, and I admire that. And it also just reminds us that, uh, you know, this, this continues to go on. Uh, there's other members of the MedTech Conference community who are uh, facing these sorts, of, uh, these sorts of investigations and indictments and, uh, and trials. So something that bears watching going forward. Uh, thank you to our MedTech Talk listeners for joining us today. Uh, one more time, this is the uh, last chance to register for the MedTech Conference. Go to medtechconference.com. Use the MedTech Talk code, save a little money, and we will see you in Minneapolis.